Romans 13, verses 8 through 10. Owe nothing to anyone to love one for he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. For this you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And if there is any other commandment, it is summed up in this saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Love, therefore, is the fulfillment of the law. Dear Father, we pray this morning that that you would impress upon our hearts the, the power of these words, the power of the law of love that fulfills the law of Moses and it fulfills every other law. Lord, we pray that we would understand the, the, the calling that you have given to us to pour out toward others the love that you have poured out upon us in Jesus Christ alone. And we pray it in his name. Amen. Good morning. I'm glad some of you got to join us yesterday for the uh, church picnic. I had a lot of fun. Played touch football for about an hour and a half. I learned two things. First, I am no Emmett Smith. And secondly, Ray Lett, who is my age, is in infinitely better condition than I am. <laughs> it was a lot of fun. How many of you uh, enjoy being in debt? It's not fun, is it? You don't have to look very far to realize that in America we live in a culture of debt. Uh, student loan in America this year reached uh, $1 trillion. In fact, exceeded Now exceeds credit card debt, and it exceeds the debt from all auto loans. The average student debt is over $27,000 for a graduating senior. Financial debt is one of the greatest stressors on marriages and is a huge contributor to the booming business in anti-anxiety and antidepressant medication in this country. If we are mature and responsible adults, we work very hard to whittle down our debt and hopefully someday to achieve the point at which we are debt-free. But there is actually one kind of debt that we have as believers that God tells us we have no chance of paying off. But that's okay, because God also tells us that he gives us a constant stream of ability to pay that debt. It's the only debt in real life that actually makes us more joyful once we have incurred it than we were before we had. And that's the debt we're going to be talking about today from Romans 13, verses 8 through 10. In the first verse of this this passage, uh, Paul says, Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. And that follows the first seven verses of chapter 13 in which Paul exhorted us to submit 
to and to honor those governing authorities whom God has placed over us and to do so as an act of submission to and honor toward God himself. And as part of that submission, in verse 7, Paul said, Render tax to whom taxes due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, and honor to whom honor. We are to faithfully pay all of our debts willingly rather than grudgingly, as unto the Lord. Now, back in chapter 12, Paul told us that we are not to concern ourselves with the debts that others owe to us. In fact, he said, Never return evil for evil to anyone. Never seek vengeance yourself, personal vengeance. In fact, regarding relationships with other men, uh, our concern is not to focus ever on the debts that others owe us, but instead on the debts that we owe others. Now in Romans 13, Paul says, Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. Now, some take that to mean, in part, that believers are not allowed to incur any form of financial debt, including uh, things like debt on a mortgage or a car. I believe that misses and trivializes Paul's point here. There are many kinds of debt that uh, don't and even can't get paid in advance. In fact, even taxes in America are, are something of a deferred debt. If you ever try to exactly match up your, the taxes you pay out with what you owe at the end of the year, uh, you'll find that a lot of times you still end up with a deferred debt that you have to pay when tax day comes around. Paul's point is not that we are never to incur debts. It's that we are not to leave those debts unpaid. We are to faithfully work to pay them off. And before I move on, I should mention that Paul's admonition not to leave obligations unpaid is in itself worthy of our consideration as believers. As representatives of Christ, we must student, studiously avoid debts that we do not have the wherewithal to repay. And we must avoid incurring or even helping others to incur any debts that might tend to cause division within the body or that might tend to create an obstacle for an unbeliever who's looking at us in order to see Christ. Um, our breakfast gang this Wednesday morning got something of a laugh when, uh, when our brother Greg Watson shared this pithy little saying. He said, before you run for money, figure out which of those two you need the most. It's amazing how simple something, uh, how, how something as simple as a loan made to a friend can work against harmony and unity in the body. If the person who borrowed the money is conscientious and finds himself unable to pay it back, he's gonna feel alienated from the one who loaned him the money. Even if the person who made him the loan feels no animosity at all about the fact that he's unable to pay it back. Even if he says, just treat it as a gift. I've seen this happen over and over. Because the unity of the body of Christ is so paramount in the eyes of God, we have to be exceedingly careful about allowing debt of any kind to create a wedge between us. 
and another believer. And we have to be doubly careful not to let any such thing create an obstacle for an unbeliever to the gospel. So if you borrow a book, a tool, a dish, whatever, it's good to fix a definite date on it and then get it back by that date. I am very guilty of violating that principle. Uh, some some of my brothers who are sitting out here know, know exactly what I'm talking about. <laughs> but do so, do those things diligently to honor Jesus Christ whose reputation among both believers and unbelievers is impacted by what you do or don't do. But enough about paying debts. That's actually incidental to this passage. The focus of verse 8 is not on the debts you must not leave unpaid. It's on the debt that you cannot leave unpaid. The debt that we will never finish paying this side of heaven. It's a glorious debt that we owe to all men. And it is the debt of love. At the beginning of verse 8, Paul tells us that that debt applies to one another. And so we might, at first glance, assume that, that the only ones that God commands us to love are those who are our brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. But at the beginning of the verse, he says, Owe nothing to anyone. So that would seem to go beyond the body of Christ. And in the next verse, in verse 9, he quotes from the law of Moses... And he removes all doubt about the scope of this command. He extends it by quoting from the Ten Commandments. And then he says, you shall love your neighbor. If if whatever's not covered in the commandments, he says, is summed up in this saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. So... He's extending it beyond the body to our neighbor. So who is this neighbor that we're supposed to love? Well, Jesus was asked that same essential question by a man who was seen to be an authority on the law of Moses. And this man first rightly restated to Jesus what Jesus had said before were the two greatest commandments of the law. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But Jesus said to him, you've answered correctly, do this, and you'll live. But wishing to justify himself, the man then asked the question, okay, Lord, who is my neighbor? And the answer Jesus gave there in Luke chapter 10 was not the one that the man expected. In fact, Jesus didn't directly answer the question, who is my neighbor? Instead, his answer focused on a different question, what kind of neighbor are you? He answered with a story, and it's a story we all, most of us know very well. It's the parable of the Good Samaritan. A man in the story, a man had been robbed and beaten and left for dead on the side of the road. A Jewish priest was traveling down that road and he saw the man laying there and he kind of carefully just passed by and did nothing to help him. And after the priest, another man, a Levite, came along the road and he did the same thing. Nothing. And then a third man came along and that man was a Samaritan and he saw this this fallen man by the side of the road and he stopped 
And he nursed that man's wounds and he helped him and he took him to an inn and he worked it out with the innkeeper to make sure that that man's health was taken care of, that his well-being was provided for until he was back to health and, and, and back on his feet and able to, to carry on. And so Jesus, after telling this Jewish lawyer this parable, he said, which of those three men is a real neighbor? The priest, the Levite, or the Samaritan? And of course, the answer is obvious. And the man answered rightly, well, the Samaritan was the real neighbor. That, by the way, was a verbal slap in the face to that Jewish lawyer who was almost certainly both a priest and a Levite. And to make it worse, Samaritans were seen by Jews as outcasts, as unclean. They were seen as outsiders to the covenants. So Jesus was saying that this this man from an impure race, according to the Jews, who showed genuine love to that injured man, was a better neighbor than the respected leaders from the temple, the priests and the Levites. The point of the parable is that a true neighbor is one who acts with sacrificial love toward another, freely giving of his time and his money and his resources, whatever he's got, to show compassion to another person. A man's race or background or outwardly pious behavior is of no consequence to God. What matters is the love that he has for others. When the Jewish lawyer asked Jesus, who is my neighbor, he was trying to, he was trying to pin down exactly what Jesus, uh, was saying that he had to do to comply with the, the commandment to love your neighbor as yourself, a commandment found in Leviticus chapter 19. He was trying to carefully define the scope of that commandment so he could know whether Jesus agreed that he was actually keeping it. That's called pursuing the letter of the law. And that brings us to the next key point about this passage. And that is that love is the fulfillment of law. By the way, in the passage, you'll notice in most Bibles the word the, before where it says fulfilled the law, the word the is in italics. That means it's not actually in the Greek. There's no definite article in either case in verse 8 or verse 10 when it talks about love fulfilling the law. Love fulfills law. At the end of Romans 13.8 and again in verse 10, Paul says, love fulfills law. And some take that to mean that love is our motivation for keeping the so-called moral commandments of the Old Testament. In essence, they're saying that love makes us better rule keepers. But we're still accountable to know and to keep the detail of those rules. I'm convinced that that doesn't go nearly far enough to express Paul's point in this passage. In fact, if you take everything that Paul has said about law up till this point, I believe he's saying quite the opposite of that. In Romans 7, verses 5 and 6, Paul says, For while we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in the members of our body to bear fruit for death. He says, but now we have been released from the law, 
having died to that by which we were bound, so that we serve in newness of the Spirit and not in oldness of the letter. Can you truly serve in newness of the Spirit if you're still serving in oldness of the letter? I believe the answer is emphatically, no, you cannot. We have been released from the law. We have died to that by which we were bound in order that we might be joined to Christ. It cannot be both. In 2 Corinthians 3, 6, Paul said, God made us adequate as servants of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. The letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Can we truly be pursuing that which kills at the same time that we're pursuing that which gives life? No. I strongly disagree with Christians who say that we live by both. That the presence of the indwelling spirit and the overriding law of love finally makes us able to keep the detail of the commandments. No. We've been released from our obligation to the letter of the law and we've been joined to Christ. Not so that we can violate the, the standard of law, but so that it can be truly fulfilled in us. Again, based on what Paul says here in Romans 13, 8 through 10, if we truly love our neighbor as God commands and intends, we fulfill the law. That means we comply with the intent of the law, and it means that we meet the standard of the law without dependence on the rules that are contained in it. Now, this is an exceedingly powerful reality, that love fulfills the standard of the law. Now, does, does that mean that love demands of us a lower standard than we find in the letter of the, of the Old Testament law? Or a higher standard? Well, in Matthew 5, verses 43 to 48, Jesus was talking in that whole passage, starting at actually at verse 21, about the kind of righteousness that passes muster with God. In verse 21, he says, Unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you shall not see the kingdom of God. And here at the end of that, of that chapter, he says, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. In order that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. See, we are to love even our enemies because while we were enemies, Christ loved us. And in doing so, we manifest the character of our Father. And then Jesus closes that chapter and that whole discussion about the righteousness that passes muster with God in verse 48 when he says, Therefore, you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Is that a lower standard or a higher standard? In Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, Paul says, Therefore, be imitators of God. Whoa. As beloved children, and walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a soothing aroma. Be imitators of God. The one and only true standard of holiness is the holiness of God Himself. 
And the one and only true standard of love is the love of God Himself. The love that God demonstrated toward us by one amazing act. See, God doesn't grade on the curve. (laughs) And because the law of Moses came from God, it presents the same perfect, uncompromising standard. It always has. The true standard of the law, the law of Moses, was always the character of God. And that's an infinitely higher standard than the letter. And the very heart, the very essence of how we work out the character of God in real life is love. Love for God and love for men. We love because He first loved us. Now if you want to see a great real life example of godly love in action, go read the book of Ruth. And spend some time getting to know the man named Boaz. Boaz gives us a vivid example of love that meets a far higher standard than is contained in the law. In Leviticus 19, the same chapter, by the way, in which God gives the command in verse 2 to Israel, Be holy, for I, Yahweh, your God, am holy. And the same chapter in which God says you shall love your neighbor as yourself, Leviticus 19:18. In that same chapter, in verses 9 and 10, God commands Israel that when they're harvesting their crops, they are not to harvest the corners of their fields and they are not to harvest... They're not to go back through and get the gleanings of the fields. What that means is that if they've got a rectangular field, when they harvest, they're to make sort of an arc and leave the corners unharvested. And as the harvesters, the servants, are going through the field and they're gathering the bundles of grain, they're going to inevitably drop some. That's just part of the process. They're working through pretty quickly. And God is saying, if you drop some, leave it. That's the gleanings. And you leave the corners and the gleanings so that the poor and the downtrodden in your midst will be provided for. They can come into the fields and they can gather that grain to provide for their families. And the reason that God gives for that command is very straightforward. He says, I am Yahweh your God. Pretty simple. See, because God is gracious and compassionate, because God is the advocate for the downtrodden, for the poor, for the widow, the orphan, and the alien. God's people are to manifest His character toward one another by showing that same commitment to compassion. Now, the specific instructions regarding the corners and the gleanings are what would constitute the letter of the law. But since the law is principle by example rather than just a set of rules, those instructions were never intended to be the full measure of Israel's compassion toward the poor. They were meant to be an example to instruct Israel. The word Torah means instruction. To instruct Israel so that they would care for the poor in a multitude of ways that aren't even mentioned in the law. Boaz was a guy who got that principle. In Ruth chapter 2, a young widow named Ruth, after her husband died in Moab, 
she came back with her mother-in-law, Naomi, to Israel. And she was destitute. She had nothing. She came into the fields of this man, Boaz, looking for some gleanings. Boaz was her kinsman. And Boaz instructed his servants. <laughs> he said, guys, let that young woman reap even among the sheaves. In other words, even among the standing grain that they hadn't harvested yet. As they went through, they were to leave some of it, let her come and grab what she wanted. But just in case Ruth's conscience wouldn't allow her to do that, Boaz also instructed his servants to, as they gathered their bundles of wheat, don't just accidentally drop some, deliberately drop some. And then when she picks him up, do not rebuke her. See, on the chance that his servants might be a little too efficient in their harvesting, Boaz made it impossible for Ruth not to have her needs and the needs of her mother-in-law provided for. He got the spirit. He got the principle. And he was not constrained by the letter. In fact, to a man like Boaz, the letter was just a spark to get his thinking cranked up so that he would be pondering how to abundantly share with others the blessings that God had poured out upon him. He wasn't going for bare minimum. He was going for broke. He would never have asked a priest, could you show me that exact wording again? About the corners and the gleanings so I'll know that I'm measuring up to the requirement of the commandment. You can be sure that Boaz knew the wording of the commandment. But he left it in the dust. He cared to know what the law showed him about the mind of God in order that he might know the mind of God and carry it out toward others. The letter of the law was valuable to him only to show him the principle of God's character. Love always takes that principle and runs with it. And what motivated Boaz to act in a manner that so far exceeded the letter of the law was love. His life reflected the love of his God. Another question Boaz would never have asked is, who is my neighbor? <laughs> because he understood and lived out the principle of loving his neighbor as himself. He lived out the principle of being a godly neighbor. And the end of this beautiful story must not be missed. God took the loving obedience of Boaz and he amped it up infinitely. Boaz ended up marrying that poor, kind-hearted Moabite widow, Ruth. And he became the great-grandfather of King David, from whose descendants came Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, according to the flesh. Were it not for the love that God poured out upon Ruth through that godly man, Boaz, Ruth would have spent the rest of her life destitute as a social outcast in Judah. But Boaz who redeemed the life of Ruth by his love, was himself a foreshadowing of the perfect kinsman redeemer who is Jesus Christ. The life of Boaz is memorialized in Scripture as a vivid and powerful reminder to all generations of God's people 
of how godly love leaves the letter of the law in the dust and fulfills abundantly the true standard of the law, which is the character of God. Okay, so if that's how it works, why do we need to study the detailed law at all that we find in the first five books of the Bible? And the answer is so that we we can be better lovers of God and lovers of men. Tonight we're having a little celebration for three young men who are graduating from high school from our body, one of whom is my beloved son, Jeff. The others are Michael and a young man named Chris Casamatis. Dan and Cindy Williams have prepared a slideshow for each of those three guys that's made up of photos that they and their parents selected. They'll have some music that that the young men recommended. For those who come tonight and get to see those slideshows, the snapshots will will serve as memorials, as reminders, to help them recall the wonderful tapestry of who each of those young men is. And the Law of Moses works in a similar way. It's a whole bunch of snapshots to remind us what our God is like and what it means to manifest His character in our relationships with Him and with men. The law is not the thing in itself any more than the snapshots of a young man's life are the sum total of who he is. The law is a memorial. It is a reminder of the thing itself and the thing itself is who our God is. The law is a very useful corrective to the tendency of our flesh to forget or to lose sight of that, of who God is. It's a corrective, for instance, of the sinful tendency to reduce the notion of love to a warm, fuzzy feeling. (laughs) In Deuteronomy 15, after God gave instructions to Israel through Moses about releasing slaves every seventh year, He told them they were not to send the slave away empty-handed. Instead, they were to provide for him liberally. They were to give him plenty of their own livestock and food and wine so that he would go away very well provided for. And Moses explained this by saying, You shall give to him as the Lord your God has blessed you. And you shall remember that you were a slave... In the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you. Therefore, I command you this today. See, that's one little snapshot from the law that proves that love as God measures love is not an emotion. It's a way of acting that responds to and imitates the powerfully active love of God that he has already worked out toward us in real tangible terms. See, without those snapshots that flesh out for us what God is really like, what his love is really like, we might be tempted to believe Hollywood and to think that love is something that you fall into and can just as easily fall out of. (laughs) That whole notion is so far removed from biblical godly love that it is Impossible even to express how utterly useless it is. And yet many, many people are convinced that that pathetic forgery is as good as it gets. 
Oh, how the marriages and relationships around us would be revolutionized if people threw that forgery of love as far away as they could throw it and paid attention to the love that God has manifested toward us. Okay, the point of all that is, yes, a diligent and thorough knowledge of the law is of great value to us as God's redeemed when our approach to it is directed by what Paul calls the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus, which has set us free from the law of sin and of death. That's in Romans 8 too. There's another facet of Paul's exhortation to owe nothing to anyone except to love one another that I want to explore for a few minutes. In Martin Lloyd-Jones' commentary on this great passage, which will be in the library as soon as I return it, Lloyd-Jones says something that I found both enlightening and encouraging. He says that while Paul talks here of love as a debt that we owe to others, a debt that is never fully paid, He's not talking at all about repaying a debt in the typical sense. See, we are not giving back to people based on what they have given to us. In this connection, uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones refers back to the obligation that Paul talked about in the very first chapter of this epistle, chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, where Paul said, I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and the foolish, Thus, for my part, I am eager to preach the gospel to you who also are in Rome. And the word obligation there is the noun form of the same word he uses in Romans 13.8 when he says, Owe nothing to any man except to love one another. Dr. Lloyd-Jones then goes on to kind of explain how he believes Paul understands that obligation. He says, he, Paul, is not just saying he wants to repay the Gentiles, for what they have given him, he's saying something much more wonderful. Paul means that he has this wonderful possession himself, and its effect upon him is so powerful that when he sees the needs of others, he feels he has no right to withhold it from them. He feels they have a claim on him, as it were, and can make a demand of him. That is why he preached. See, our debt to love others works that way. Because we who deserved only condemnation have been given life and blessing in Jesus Christ, we are under a marvelous obligation to others. To extend that life and blessing to them as ambassadors of the one true God from whom they proceed. Our debt to men is the inevitable outworking of a desperate need already met. (laughs) In Romans 5.5, Paul says that the love of God has been shed abroad, and that means it has been poured out abundantly within our hearts. That's an overflowing love. Our God is a wellspring of life and love, so we never run out of either. Do you rarely find the time to be involved in the lives of other people? Do you dread the phone call from someone who has need of your time and attention because it messes up your own plans for your time and attention? How can we say that we are presenting ourselves as living, holy, 
acceptable sacrifices to God, if we're insulating ourselves from our brothers and sisters in Christ and from unbelievers who don't know anything about Him. I've learned a lot lately from watching one of my dear sisters in Christ. I don't want to embarrass her, so I won't say her name, but I'll just tell you that she has really long hair and she sits right beside my mother-in-law on Saturday, on Sunday mornings. She doesn't wait for that phone call from the person who needs her time and attention. Instead, she initiates the phone call. She sets up the opportunity to pour out the love that God has shown to her toward another person. And she does it all the time. And when I grow up, I want to be just like her. The self-protective mode in which we find ourselves comes from a failure of love which in turn stems from a failure of gratitude. If I'm truly mindful of what I've been given by God that I did not deserve, I will be irresistibly compelled to pass it to others. It won't be a burden. It'll be a delight. Lately, I've been praying and asking my brothers to pray for me that instead of finding rest after loving and serving others, I will find rest in loving and serving others as I have been loved and served by God in Jesus Christ. All right, so the debt of love is a debt we never finish repaying, finish paying. Love is the fulfillment of the law and the obligation that we have to love is an obligation from fullness, not from want. It's from an overflowing wealth. But there's something unexpected about these three little loaded verses that demands our consideration, and it points to this last item, which is the doctrinal foundation of godly love. Paul declares here that he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. And then in verse 10, because love does no wrong to a neighbor, love therefore is the fulfillment of the law. And in between those two statements, very uncompromising statements, he presents four commandments and then a summary commandment. And the four commandments from the Ten Commandments all have to do with our relationship with men. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not covet. And then he says, and if there's any other commandment, it is summed up in this saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if we compare what Paul is saying here with the words of Jesus in Matthew 22, it appears that Paul has left out something critically important. In Matthew 22, when Jesus was asked, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? He responded, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. And in Luke 10, he adds, with all your strength. This is the greatest and foremost commandment, the great and foremost commandment. A second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. Now, as many before me have pointed out, those two overarching commandments tie directly back to what has been called the two tables of the Ten Commandments. The first four of the Ten Commandments have to do with Man's relationship toward, relationship with an obligation toward God. And the, the other six have to do with man's relationship with 
and obligation toward his fellow man. If we truly love God with all our heart and soul and mind and strength, we will fulfill the standard presented in those first four commandments. And if we truly love our neighbor as ourselves, we will fulfill the standard presented in the latter six commandments. And thus, love fulfills the entirety of the law and the prophets. But here in Romans 13, Paul speaks of the second of those two great commandments, but he does not mention the first. And yet he says that loving our neighbor as ourselves fulfills the law. So does that mean that as long as we are focusing our energy and our effort on loving our fellow man, we're covered when it comes to our relationship with God? That's an exceedingly important question. It's a question that our ongoing struggle with the self-focused and man-centered sin nature demands that we answer rightly. My wife works at the DTS library, so I get all kinds of good information about books. And she handed me this book a while back. It's called The Post-Church Christian by Paul and Carson Nyquist. By the way, all the good books that she gives me are also in the church library. This book, short, it's an easy read, but it's about the generational divide that exists within the evangelical church today. It does a really good job of smoking out and addressing the issue that causes the greatest friction between the baby boomers and the younger generations, especially the 20s and 30s adults in the body of Christ today. And one of those most prominent points of friction is the relative level of priority that the baby boomer generation compared with the younger generation places on the commitment to sound doctrine and disciplined knowledge of God's word versus the commitment to God-honoring relationships with other men. To oversimplify the discussion a bit, there is a significant difference in the importance that the two generations place on doctrine versus relationship. I'm just going to read one quick segment. This is from the... the Carson is a 30-year-old pastor, the son of Paul. Paul's an old established evangelical pastor. And half the book is written by Carson and half the book's written by Paul. And they're kind of having a dialogue. It's, It's really interesting. One of the things Paul says is about his generation, he says, we start with people often before doctrine. The implications of such a shift are numerous. To begin with, we are far more tolerant than any previous generation. This is a natural result of valuing valuing people. Our doctrinal differences no longer create the boundaries they once did, and the reason is because they're not allowed to. I'm going to read you another brief quote. This one's from a different book. It says, we are living in an age when, because of the obsession with human relationships rather than the relationship with God, these words, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, are not only misunderstood, but the whole statement is reversed. This is a modern misunderstanding of the Christian faith and the Christian message. Anybody want to guess when those words were written? They're from a sermon by Martin Lloyd-Jones on this passage in Romans 13 that He preached in the mid-1960s, almost 50 years ago. 
And on the very next page after Lloyd-Jones says that, he points out that this is not a new controversy. He quotes an 18th century poem about a man who has a vision in which he beholds an angel writing in a book. And the man asks the angel what he's writing, and the angel tells him that he's writing the names of those that love the Lord. And the man says, is my name in your book? And the angel says, no, it is not. And so the man says to the angel, I pray thee then, write me as one who loves his fellow man. And the next night, this man has another vision. He sees the same angel. And the angel opens the book and he shows him the names whom love of God has blessed. And that man's name is at the top of the list. See, the point of the poem is, if you truly love your fellow men, that is as good as if you loved God, even if you haven't given any priority to cultivating your relationship with God. Is that what Paul is saying? Is that why he leaves out what Jesus called the foremost commandment, to, lo- to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind? Is Paul saying that as long as you love your neighbor, you're covered when it comes to loving God? I have to answer that question with Paul's most repeated and favorite answer in this epistle. Anybody know what that is? You got it. May it never be. In Ephesians 5, 1 and 2, we looked at this earlier, Paul clearly points out that our knowledge of God's love for us in Jesus Christ is first. It is foundational to the love that we have for others. He says, be imitators of God as beloved children. And walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. Can you imitate the love of God in your relationships with other people if you know little or nothing about who God is and what he has done for you in Jesus Christ? You cannot. Paul has already made this most essential of points as carefully, as thoroughly, and as persuasively as he can. In all the exhortations that we found that, that we find here in chapters 12 to 15 are founded upon the boundless mercies that God has already poured out to us in Christ Jesus. In Romans 5:8, Paul said, "But God demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us." In other verses, he says, "We were ungodly, we were helpless, and we were we were enemies." See, that statement, God demonstrates his love toward us through the death of Christ, isn't made in a vacuum. It follows several chapters of the greatest doctrinal exposition you'll find anywhere in the Bible about God's holiness, man's sinfulness, and God's astounding gift to unholy men of his own righteousness. If you take away any of the amazing truths presented in the first 11 chapters of this epistle, Paul's exhortations here are not only out of context, they are robbed of their very foundation and power. John says in 1 John 4, 7 and 8, this is good a one verse, right? Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from 
God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. John begins that that verse with the word beloved. (laughs) We are those who, though deserving condemnation, have been made the beloved of God. John tells us love is from God and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. And then he points us to the doctrinal foundation of the very best that we know of genuine love. By this, the love of God was manifested in us that God has sent His only begotten Son into the world that we might live through Him. And this is love, not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. And then in verse 19, he says, we love because he first loved us. John, just like Paul, bases the exhortation to us to love others on a clear, personal knowledge and awareness of God's preeminent demonstration of love toward us in Jesus Christ. The world has plenty of lousy counterfeits that it calls love, but that's exactly what they are. They're fakes. They're forgeries. There is no such thing as love of our fellow man as God defines it unless it is the love that issues forth from the believer's intimate, personal, and propositional knowledge of God, a knowledge that beholds the love that is of the essence of God's own nature. A knowledge that beholds the propositional truth of Christ's substitutionary atonement to pay the eternal debt of our sin, which is the most defining act of love ever presented to man. Paul is saying nothing different than John. Martin Lloyd-Jones further quotes a famous American minister who once said, wherever you find love, you find God. And then Lloyd-Jones summarizes the long history of upside-down priorities with these words. He says, the contention that confronts us is that all we must do is love our fellow men and then we are loving God, whatever God may be. We must not start with our theology and doctrine and definitions. That is all unnecessary. Indeed, there can be a religionless Christianity. It is said that we do not need the church at all, but we need only go out into the world knowing that wherever we find love, there we find God. And he encapsulates that whole catastrophically misguided approach by saying that when some men repeat the words of John declaring God is love, what they actually mean is love is God. It is not possible to love others in a manner that fulfills the supernatural standard of God's character if we are not giving diligent attention to our relationship with God as the first and foremost of all pursuits. I'll say that again. Our relationship with God is the first and foremost of all pursuits. Love is the overriding priority in our relationships with men. Based on 1 Corinthians 13, love trumps faith, love trumps hope, love trumps knowledge, love trumps even charity. But a religionless love is not love at all. A love that neglects or diminishes our love of God is not love at all because love is from God. And beloved, 
the astounding plan of redemption by which God worked out his love for us in Christ when he died on the cross and was raised from the dead. And what that tells us about the character of God, that's what the entire Bible is about. It's his story. This isn't something that you learn quickly and then you can just put your Bible on a shelf and get on with being like Christ. It is a lifetime pursuit. It is a daily commitment to know God. As we've pondered many times during our study of this great epistle, the entire demise of mankind began when man made himself the standard of truth and turned his face away from God's revelation of himself. In Romans 18, Romans 1, 18 and following, we see that though men had received the knowledge of God by his gracious doing, they did not honor him as God or give thanks. Professing to be wise, they became fools. And as Paul points out in Romans 1.31, in his scathing indictment of mankind, they did not become loving, they became unloving. Now let me clarify something. The first half of this book has some really good stuff in it. The very point of this passage is that we are to be lovers of men because we have been loved by God. And to the extent that we are not loving as we have been loved, there's a serious failure, a failure of failing in the body of Christ. And the exhortation, the, the challenge that Carson in that book gives from his generation's perspective to some of us who are very, very disciplined about doctrine is do not forget Because if you do, it's useless. We are called to be lovers of God and lovers of men. We love because he first loved us. We must never forget that that's how love works. Dear Father, we thank you for the power of the exhortations here. We thank you, Lord, for the, the amazing reality that love fulfills law. We thank you for the freedom and the liberty from slavery to sin that you have given us in Christ. And we thank you that that freedom is a freedom to love as we have been loved. Make it so, Father. We pray that you would, you would burn this into our hearts, that you would make us realize that our time, our money, all our resources belong to you, not to us. Our life belongs to you. It comes from you. And you didn't save us, Father, so that we could, we could hoard that amazing blessing. You saved us and you've left us here for a time in order that we might pour it out upon the people around us. Father, please, we pray, make that happen in us and through us individually and as a body. We pray it in Jesus' precious name. Amen.